everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. Today I'm joined by Atanas Valiv. Atanas is no stranger to the podcast. I've done two episodes with him in the past. He's always a pleasure to work with. Oh, and if you didn't know, he's the founder of Tremona Yogurt, which is my favorite yogurt company, and he's a two-time Library of Congress speaker. So Atanas has really been around quite a bit. Today we're taking a slightly different approach though, and we're not going to talk exclusively about yogurt or his journey from immigrating to Bulgaria and starting his own yogurt company in America or any of his Library of Congress speeches. Instead, we're going to talk about Atanas's journey with Lyme disease, and I'm going to mix a little bit of my own journey in there as well. And Atanas even shares some different health tips that he's learned to help him with Lyme disease. Now, with that said, it's important to note that neither Atanas or myself are physicians, and this is not meant to be medical advice. However, you can take the information and insight that we share in this episode and discuss it with your primary care provider. And, of course, if you do notice any kind of symptoms of Lyme disease like we discussed today, it might be good to seek a opinion from your primary care provider. Now that that's out of the way, let's get to the podcast. Atanas, welcome back to the podcast. It's been almost a year since we've last had you on. Excited to have you back. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So last time we talked all about yogurt and your experience immigrating from Bulgaria to the U.S. and starting Tremona Yogurt. This time we're still talking health, but we're talking about Lyme disease and your personal experience with Lyme. So for those who don't know, could you kind of walk us through your journey that you've had with Lyme disease when you were first diagnosed to where you are today? Uh, Yes, it was exactly 28 years ago. Uh, a long time. <laughs> so, as a, yeah, as a fresh immigrant, actually 29 years ago, but still a long time. So as a fresh immigrant, uh, I was just uh, jumping from job to job, even if my uh, trade is uh, agriculture engineer, tropical and subtropical farming, I couldn't find a job, you know. And I, I was uh, just going, doing all kind of, uh, you know, I was laborer. So uh, 29 years ago, I was working landscaping in Long Island, New York. And and many of your listeners probably know that Long Island is uh, known not just for the great resorts and uh, the Hamptons and stuff, but there are a lot of ticks. (laughs) There are a lot of deer and where there's a lot of deer, there there are ticks. So uh, I was working in this, um, in Shelter Island which is close to uh, Long Island. And um, I remember when I was carrying some branches and stuff. uh, And then I didn't pay attention because it was just, I was young and it was just doing my job and then go home and everything. But then I noticed this bullseye on the back of my, uh, actually my wife did, says, you know, what's this in your back? It's like typical um, Lyme disease, uh, not Lyme disease, but tick bite. So back then, not many people knew about Lyme disease. And uh, I was, and there was not, you know, internet was not that popular at all. And there's no uh, place that you can get uh, valuable uh, information from. So here and there, I, I, you know, I heard that this could be, this bike could trigger Lyme disease. I didn't know what that was, but they say as much as people knew back then, they say, oh, if, if your joints don't 
uh, ache, you are okay. And in two, three weeks, if you don't feel any pain in your joints, you're going to be fine. And that's what happened. I had the bullseye in my back. Everything it just went away. And um, no pain, nothing. And uh, so that's how uh, it started. Actually, I didn't know that the Lyme disease started then. And then three and a half years later, this three and a half years later, I didn't feel a thing, nothing. Three years, three and a half years later, my left knee just blew up, just puffed up. What is this? I don't remember hitting it or anything. I went to my uh, primary physician and um, he didn't send me for a Lyme test, uh, blood test, because as I said, it wasn't that popular. And then he would think, oh, some sort of inflammation. He put me on ibuprofen for a week, which is a joke. Now, if you <laughs> tell me that is a typical joke, but the, you know, the guy didn't know. So it went away because it's an inflammation. Six months later, the same thing happened with my right knee. I went to the same doctor and he sent me to, for lab tests. Sure enough, I had Lyme. That's how the whole thing started. And if you want to know what happened next, I will continue. <laughs> yeah, I would love to know. It seems like early on you were exposed to that tick. You had the bullseye rash and everyone was like, well, it's not giving you a problem. So just brush it aside. And at the time, you didn't even know, um, and maybe medicine didn't even know at the time, the extent of what this bacterial infection could do to your health long term. And you and I both know that those consequences can be slight, uh, slightly severe, especially when you know your whole treatment approach was simply to reduce the symptoms and not get to the root cause of what was causing them in the first place. Unfortunately, uh, you know, scientists didn't know anything about it. Doctors didn't know or knew very little. I was given an antibiotic and I took it for a month. This is what happens when you go to whatever uh, complaint you have, you can go to your doctor to try one, you know, medicine. If it doesn't work, you switch to another. Then, you know, third uh, decision or different approach. That's what happens. So this is what happened with me. One antibiotic, I think the name was Rosefin. I don't know if they use it anymore. It didn't work. They put me on another one. It didn't work. So, and then uh, they put me on intravenous therapy. So I, uh, a nurse would come in my house and they hooked everything up. I had a needle in my wrist over here. I had to carry it all the time. And it was funny. I don't know if it was funny, but when I go to the store and people see that needle, everything thought that I had contracted HIV because back then that was pretty popular, you know, with the infectious disease and, and scary too. And I'm like, no, 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 I have Lyme disease. Nobody knew when I say Lyme disease, like, what is this? I think that intravenous for a month, intravenous, intravenous therapy helped me a lot. During this uh, two months, during that um, therapy with an antibiotic, I developed some sort of, um, you know, joint. Uh, I would feel joint pain uh, in my. It's always it was with me it was always on the left side of my body, left shoulder, uh, left knee, left wrist. Then there was something I don't remember which joint was on the right side, but it's always on the left side, and. I had this for um, 
for a few months, then it went away. And I thought, oh, I'm completely cured. I don't feel anything. Uh, and I just continued just living my life. I didn't change anything, nothing in my diet or physical exercise. As I said, I was a laborer and I was just working physical you know, work and, and always moving around and just eating everything, drinking everything, whatever. But then in a few years, those pain, the, the, the pink came back in the same joint. So I didn't know that my joints were permanently damaged. So that means damage. When I say damage, don't mean that they were falling apart, but they were, uh, they were, um, if, if some inflammation gets into my body, the joints were the first one that would get, uh, that would react to it. And how they react, you know, they develop pain. So um, I was like, I have to do something about it. And I started watching what I eat. Back then, I didn't know anything about nutrition. And I just started doing things on my own. And, it, you know, I'm a big yogurt eater, not just yogurt <laughs> producer. And I know, you know, all the benefits in yogurt, especially probiotics. So what I think, this is totally anecdotal because there's no clinical study done with me. But I think my diet helped me a lot because I, I must have built a very strong immune system or I had one to begin with. Because remember, this three and a half years, nothing happened. Some people, when they get the tick bite, they have headaches, they have uh, joint pain, they have all kinds of complications right away or within a week. I didn't have anything. So um, every time when I go for a blood test, will show positive Lyme disease, positive. I always tell my, do my doctor, because I was changing doctors all the time. I said, like, just don't, this is because I had Lyme disease and it's always gonna be there. That bacteria called Borrelia, always gonna be there. Just so you know, it's gonna show positive. So that's how I was, deal I I was dealing with it uh, throughout the years. It was like flare ups all the time. Right, and those flare ups, um, seem to be linked to inflammation. I think you recognize that. And from what I've heard from other doctors and researchers and individuals who study Lyme disease currently is Lyme is very closely linked to systemic inflammation, like most disease processes, right? Lyme can cause joint pain, swelling, and inflammation. Lyme can cause inflammation of the eye. Lyme can cause inflammation of the liver. So hepatitis in a way. Um, so it's a disease process that seems to give us issues through joint inflammation and other systemic inflammation processes. So if you do improve your nutrition approach, right, Hippocrates himself said that all disease processes start in the gut. We know a lot of modern nutrition and modern foods that people eat on the daily are not healthy. They're not good for our gut lining, our gut flora. So if you do improve your nutrition and reduce inflammation in your gut, which is a like main central area for our body, right? Everything goes in the gut and then through the liver to the rest of the body. So if step one in that process is not well taken care of, then what do you think the rest is going to look like, right? So if you clean up your nutrition, eat healthier things and reduce inflammation within your gut lining itself, the rest will be able to heal accordingly. But if you're eating and living your life with a inflamed gut, so inflammation within your abdomen, then the rest is going to try and pick up and work overtime to try and make up for it, right? 
your liver's going to have to work overtime because that's your filtering organ. Same with your kidneys, right? So it, it's this whole big, long process that all comes back to that systemic inflammation based on what I've seen and what I've heard from other individuals. And again, it's so kind of kind of going back to our talk about a year ago on nutrition and the importance of gut health in you know disease processes. So many foods that we eat, I said this earlier, uh, impact the lining of our gut and our overall gut inflammation. So a lot of people are, I think it's like 50 or 60% of people have some kind of intolerance to uh, regular dairy. So not fermented, but just like drinking milk or eating cheese. A good percentage of people um, have some level of gluten intolerance. And gluten has been found in research studies to expand the types of um, junctions between cells in our gut lining uh, from tight to gap. So we now have gaps in our gut lining that cause things like leaky gut. Uh, and you can like Google stats on leaky gut syndrome and candida. And, you know, the estimates are hundreds of millions of Americans have this stuff and we don't even realize it. we're just going on living our lives in a inflamed state. And we don't even realize it. We just, you know, treat these aches and pains with little cover-ups instead of getting to that root cause and root source. And in your case, it sounds like you were able to eventually through trial and error and a long process involved with the medical system, you're able to get to that root source and find that, you know, living a healthier lifestyle made you uh, feel better and you had less aches and pains and you had less overall flare-ups once you started uh, living that healthier lifestyle and watching what you ate a little bit more closely. Yes, yes. Um, everything you said is just right on the money. That's it. So everything starts from the gut. We've heard that 100,000 times. We read it everywhere. And guess what? It's true. That's what it is. And plus, not that you have to balance your microbiome and there's another thing called immune system there they say like 70 probably 80 percent of it resides in the gut and guess what a lot of people uh just managed through COVID, just because they had strong immune system with weak immune system a lot of bad things could happen so with going back to the lyme disease that that may have been my case i was just building stronger and stronger immune system without even knowing it um, and uh, one thing I wanted to mention again about Lyme disease, the, the name of uh, this doctor, which he was the one that probably knew the most about Lyme disease back then in the entire country, maybe entire world, Dr. Raymond Detweiler. And uh, you know, some, this 29, 30 years later, I uh, managed to, to get in touch with him and I reminded him my story and everything because he was the one actually that uh, prescribed it you know, the therapy, and, and I was seeing him after that, and uh, so forth. But yeah, um, the, uh, the gut, uh, uh, one thing you, I think you, you for, forgot to mention is about how Lyme disease affects us, is the brain. This is scary. And as you know, the immune system somehow is, it's, it's connected uh, with the brain, I believe it's through the vagus nerve, I'm not exactly sure but if you have a good gut you'll probably have a good brain too a functioning brain so uh, I, I know that a lot of people that suffer from Lyme disease complain from uh, memory loss or they become forgetful and it's that is very scary they became forgetful at an early age 
it's not the age that will uh, worry that we may develop uh, Alzheimer. Uh, so yeah, it is. But now nowadays, I have to tell you, nowadays I think uh, they can treat it much better. I mean, a lot of research was done, and when I spoke with Dr. Detweiler, he told me, yes, a lot has improved, but there's a lot of dark areas. It's just, and it, you know, the research continues. So we can completely uh, be able to eliminate this uh, this uh, scary disease because it, it's, as I said, it's not a joke. It's not just a rash that you have on your skin and uh, some flare-ups here and there. It could develop uh, to a very, you know, I mean, devastating disease. So yeah, we have to take care of our gut. That's number one, at least to me. And I always tell the uh, my uh, clients because you know i became a nutritionist too because of these things and uh it, it's just it doing uh it's doing wonders for some people when they really uh get the, the right uh, probiotics prebiotics that actually feeds the probiotics and right. um yeah right and you bring up a great point with the neurological side of things too right untreated lyme disease can develop into a lot of different issues in the brain one through that gut brain connection that we've talked about extensively in past podcast episodes, but untreated Lyme can also infect parts of your nervous system and lead to things like meningitis, or it can lead to various neuropathies and uh, Bell's palsy or facial nerve palsy. So you get that kind of drooping of one side of your face. Uh, and there's other studies that even show certain like cognitive defects and uh, memory impairments can be developed. Uh, in response to contracting Lyme disease. Uh, so clearly this is something that we need to get a good handle on, like we've talked about, um, but I'll kind of step outside the normal box for a minute and kind of push things and challenge things a little bit. A lot of these same things, chronic inflammation, neurological symptoms, impaired memory, heart rhythm irregularities, a lot of these different things that can develop from Lyme disease can also develop from someone who doesn't take care of their body in the first place and who lives in a systemically inflamed state and who lives in a state of hyperglycemia, right? So if your body doesn't have the uh, ability to process insulin regularly or um, manage its blood glucose regularly and your body's in a inflamed state, you can also develop these things. So you talked about how, you know, further research and further work is ongoing. I'm curious to see if they ever come up with a way to distinguish and discern how much of the symptoms that we associate with the Lyme disease are associated with the infection as opposed to someone's lifestyle. Because it seems like when people get their lifestyle on, you know, handle for lack of a better way to put it, and they reduce their systemic inflammation, they eat healthier, they live a healthier active lifestyle, the disease is not nearly as bad. So I'd be very interested to see if there's a way to discern how much of it is due to the disease and how much of it is due to lifestyle. And I'm not sure if there's really a way or a means to kind of distinguish between those two. But again, just pushing that level of thought to the next level here. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would say that Lyme disease sometimes uh, falls in the same category with all this untreated uh, diseases out there like fibromyalgia, they didn't know if it was a disease or a condition. I don't know if they still do. And they all this weird, you know, diseases, they would fall in the same category to me. And I would say, oh, just do that. But inflammation, 
inflammation was always in the core of the, you know, the, 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 the cause of all this. So they would just, they, they would just lump them up and then just say, okay, well, this could prevent or uh, control um, the, uh, the symptoms of all this disease. And I don't know why they put it all in one, in all, one spot. Most of the research that is done now is to find a, a, a pharmacological method of treatment, treatment and not so much what we do, what we eat, how we exercise, how we sleep, and what we all do. So all this unknown, uh, not the known disease, but the, the, the disease that we don't know how to treat, how to fix, then they, they, put, it, they, they put it aside to say, just make sure you have a good lifestyle. I would say this is my own opinion, and you know I read it all the time. You know, because uh, my wife has fibromyalgia, and I have not first but secondhand experience because we live together, so I know what it's like. She's in perfect shape, but what she does—that's subject for another podcast. She does a lot to maintain it, and nobody knows she has it. Nobody knows she has. At the same time, there are people because fibromyalgia hits women most of the time and then they you know they get on strong medicine like lyrica i remember years ago when she had it she fell asleep when she was driving just i'm not gonna touch this anymore um so she found different way to manage you know the more she moves the better she feels just put it you know simple words but it really 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 helps her this way and then of course because i started paying more attention to nutrition and learning about it. And I changed our diet, you know, so we, a lot of things we don't eat anymore and a lot of good things we eat. And we try to, you know, keep active. That really helps. So uh, th this is like a remedy for all of those uh, diseases that we don't know how to treat. Just at least do that. At least do that if you don't know how to treat Lyme disease or fibromyalgia or uh, Crohn disease or whatever it is, or uh, um, uh, Hashimoto, at least just work on your diet. Yeah, this sounds a lot like um, the conversations I had with uh, Steve Wiltshire and Tim James, who both did the um, Hippocrates Health Institute in Florida to manage their different health conditions. Uh, it sounds very similar uh, to that. I'm curious, you did the nutrition courses at Cornell. What did you change in your own nutrition and eating style uh, after taking the courses at Cornell University? And how has that impacted both you and your wife's quality of life, uh, you with the Lyme and her with the fibro? What I did, actually, I, when I took this course, I started pretty much prepared for it because I had done a lot of studies um, before that, probably eight to 10 years, I've been uh, researching, you know, for myself and, you know, reading textbooks and then following, uh, you know, nutrition experts out there, biochemists. So what I learned from Cornell, the first thing is how to read a scientific study. You know, if I want to inform myself of something, I, you go on the internet and uh, let's say you pick the right place on the internet, the right source, then you have to know who wrote it, when, uh, who's got a stake in the game. Um, there's, there are a few things that, that uh, the authority of the, the writer um, 
so you know if you get the good information, if it's the right one, it's not biased. That that's one thing I learned. The other thing is I just refreshed my um, you know classes in biology and biochemistry from high school, and um, I learned a few new things. Uh, there was um, times that I would not agree with certain state statements or uh, diets, because as we know, it's all individual. And I gave them uh, myself as an example, how I was doing a ketogenic diet for a long time. And that, not because it was a big hype, it wasn't back then when I started, it, people were not talking about ketogenic because keto, ketones, ketosis was like a, um, scary uh, word because they were confusing it with ketoacidosis. We all know what this is. You know, this is a disease that the type one diabetics have very low sugar. So I was um, just uh, participating in some conversation, just challenging uh, my mentors, which was a good thing because that's how you know, a good knowledge is born or, you know, we debated and all stuff, but I have to tell you, I learned a lot. I thought I knew, but um, hmm, there was a lot to learn there. So I'm very, very happy that I took this course. It was very high quality. And as you know, science changes all the time. So we have to stay with eyes open and, and, and see what's the new thing and uh, so and apply it to you because you don't if you don't apply it to you or if you have clients or friends or family it means nothing what if did you know it you know you just have to apply to see if it's gonna help you uh, for better health or, or if you have some uh, some condition or disease it really helps you know I can give you so many examples especially with our yogurt we have like hundreds of testimonials with people with improved digestive health but we don't share it with uh, with public because they would sound fake i always say that so right right and whenever you go into a new course like that we believe in uh at least i believe in what's called the dunning kruger effect which is you have this body of knowledge and you know confidence and all that and what you think you know and then you find out what you actually know is just a fraction of what there is and that kind of restarts that learning process and makes you curious to get involved again and learn more. And I often like to challenge people, uh, one, whether they listen to the podcast or, you know, they're in college or taking a course or something like that is go in and assume, you know, nothing about it and just go in with a open mind and hear the line of thought and think of it, see if it makes sense. Uh, because some people will listen to a podcast or go into a course and they'll be so close-minded and so closed off that they will, you know, completely shrug it all aside. When in reality, there's actually good content and good information within there. Now, obviously you have to make sure that what you're listening to and what you're engaging in is, you know, high quality stuff. And in your case, going to Cornell University for courses, I mean, you can't go much higher than Cornell University, in my opinion. Uh, you know, they're Ivy League schools for a reason, as I like to say. Um, but I, I think in general, we get so close-minded about things. And that relates back to Lyme disease because we think of all these, you know, common treatment approaches, right? We think about things like medication and vaccination and things that we use to treat other diseases. And yet we haven't made substantial ground on developing those things for humans 
uh, as it relates to Lyme disease, right? We have done years and years of studies and trials to develop a vaccine for Lyme disease for humans. And lo and behold, it's approved for animals, but not humans. So your dog can get vaccinated against Lyme, but you can't. Uh, so there, there's still, as you said before, there's still a lot we don't know, and there's still so much that we need to learn about and find out about. And that's a ongoing, never-ending process. And it's easier for everyone if we admit what we do know and what we don't know about the disease process, rather than kind of, you know, tell people this is exactly what we know, this is exactly what you have to do, and providing, you know, false hope. You know, you look at my own case. I did the antibiotic course. I haven't gone back and gotten treated or uh, tested for Lyme since I finished that uh, course of antibiotics at this point when we're recording this. So I'm kind of curious if it'll show that I'm negative for Lyme and, you know, I don't have an active infection anymore, or if it will show that, hey, uh, I still have an active infection. And then it'll be a matter of, you know, what, what then, what now, what do I do? Where do I go from here? Um, but that's, that's something that, again, if you're transparent about it, if you tell people, look, we are going to do the antibiotic course, but there's a chance it might not completely cure and treat it. We might have to go back and do other things. I feel like people are going to be a lot more accepting and a lot better about it than if you tell them, you know, do this and this is the end all be all. And then they find out that there's a lot more, more, more pieces to the puzzle, I'll say. The good news, Dan, is that um, you can control it. You can control this Lyme disease once you have it. Because when I was diagnosed, I was the worst case in entire Long Island. The worst case. They haven't seen such a high titer of the bacteria, which means the concentration of the bacteria in the blood. So you can suppress the growth. It's, the bacteria is now in some sort of a dormant stage. But if there's additional inflammation triggered for whatever, poor diet, stress, you name it, this bacteria may start, you know, propagating again. And, and, and just if it's in a, it's just a bigger army. They if you attack, attack you, it will, of course, it will conquer you. So we'll defeat you. So you're trying to suppress it. If you can't cure it, if you can't kill it, at least just put it, try to put it at bay. You know, it just so it doesn't. Uh, really harm you and this is um i'm um, just a living example you know for years i haven't i haven't felt anything maybe some flare-ups here and there for a couple of days but that's it and the flare-up is what you feel like you're developing fever so and it goes away like half an hour one hour but no aches none of none of that right right and i'd imagine going back to our discussion on nutrition and the importance of diet right is a bacterial infection. And I don't know of any studies that look at, you know, what specifically the Borrelia burgdorferi bacteria that causes Lyme disease. I don't know what that um, bacteria like consumes in order to grow and reproduce and survive, but a lot of bacteria consume sugar and a lot of bacteria are grown in lab settings in uh, sugar and starch type uh, dishes. So to me, it's a case of, okay, well, if bacteria consume sugar, especially, you know, refined processed forms of sugar, and sugar is bad for my immune system, right? Because sugar is not good for the gut. 60 to 70% of our immune system is in our gut. So if I'm consuming sugar, that could potentially, again, I don't know of any study confirming it, 
but it, I would like to say that it's plausible that bacteria do consume sugar. So this bacteria could be consuming the sugar and the foods that I eat in order to reproduce for itself. It's going to harm my own immune system and it's going to put me in an inflamed state. No wonder why it's going to be a much worse disease process for me at that point if I'm consuming a high sugar diet. Now, if I cut that out, if I cut out the thing that the bacteria need to grow and survive, if I cut the thing that causes inflammation and cut the thing that's hindering my immune system, then all of those things should be able to flourish and prosper in a better means. And I'm going to feel better as a result. Uh, I did something similar when I had the, uh, the hernia surgery uh, back in 2019, I think it was. I didn't eat sugar for three weeks afterwards because anytime you have an abdominal procedure like that, you're at risk for infection. And I didn't want to risk any infection. I figured, hey, you know, if you know, we grow bacteria in sugar cultures, I should probably just avoid sugar as much as I can. And, you know, again, it, a little bit anecdotal, um, haven't seen a whole lot of research on it, but it worked for me. Um, and I think that's ultimately what people need to take away is you mentioned before that Cornell taught you how to look at studies and research. Almost every research study has some kind of conflict of interest, or you can pick out something that isn't quite right with it, or you look at the population and you can't apply that population to your own life, right? So we look at, we'll take intermittent fasting, for example, a lot of fasting studies have been done in men and not a lot are done in women. So how can we apply a study on males to females when they're very different individuals? So while research is extremely important and has provided us a great path forward, we also need to keep into consideration that there's a lot of different cases of individuals like yourself who have been diagnosed with a disease for almost 30 years and have found a way to manage, manage it effectively and efficiently in a way that doesn't really impact your lifestyle and the life that you want to live currently. And when you keep all those things in mind, it's like, you know, are we barking up the wrong tree in one way or the other uh, by continuing to look at the research when perhaps the answer could be right in front of us with other people's stories and experiences of how they handle the condition? Unfortunately, uh, you know, people believe only, I don't know how to, how to say this, um, I've shared my story with many people and not everybody believed me or they'll say, no, 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 I'm going to go see my doctor. Well, okay. Do you want to hear from me? You know what I did because I was the one that suffered, not your doctor. I mean, your doctor probably knows a lot more than me because that's what these people are trained for to do that. But you don't want to listen to me. People will listen, but they'll always believe the other side. And this is what I don't get. And I tell them, this is what I applied. You know, it's individual to everyone. Maybe you'll develop some sort of a, I don't know, brain disease. or We don't know what's going to happen. Um, but, you know, people should just listen, read, educate themselves uh, a lot more. And not just trust one, uh, one source of information. Um, that's what I would do. I always, when I try to... Uh, find out about a better way to sleep, for example. I would take, uh, you know, what the information and, and, and um, uh, experience from a few scientists, not just one. And that's why I would suggest to people, you know, if they, if they especially with Lyme disease, just um, try to find out, you know, the, the real people's stories. And of course, you know, 
go and then do all the necessary blood tests, see what's the newest out there. Is there any vaccine that's working? I believe there is. Um, but yeah, when you, once you contract the disease, it's too late for the vaccine. But right. anyways, so you, can, you have to look at the different sources of information. That, that's what I'm, the, the bottom line. And at this point too, you can't really like avoid the factors that cause Lyme disease, in my opinion, because the risk factors are being outside, being in like wooded, grassy areas. And, you know, to me, those are healthy things. It's good to get outside. It's good to go out in nature and, you know, just disconnect from the world for a while. So to me, I'm not going to tell someone, yeah, you know, don't go outside. Don't go, you know, don't go in the grass. Don't go for a hike. Don't do any of that because you could get Lyme disease, right? Like, you know, anytime you step outside, if you're in the Northeast, especially, and you go off the beaten path and into the grass, tick could jump on you. You know, a tick could bite you within 24 hours, 48 hours or so. And next thing you know, you've now got to deal with, you know, the repercussions of developing Lyme disease. But that shouldn't be the thing that scares you away from going outside and living a healthy lifestyle, right? Like in your case, you uh, worked a very outdoorsy, active job. And just because you got Lyme disease, you didn't like ever like avoid going outside again. You still go outside, you still get in the sun, you still go on hikes and move around, right? So it's just remembering too that, you know, just because the, you could potentially avoid the causative factors doesn't necessarily mean it's better for you to do so. There's a accepted risk with everything. Let me now uh, give you a few tips now, because that was not the only time that I got uh, bitten by a tick. Mm -hmm. Probably 10 or 15 more times I got bitten by a tick, but because I knew what happened the first time, so for the second time, I, I, I get paranoid. How can you not get paranoid? Because like, oh my God, what's going on now? What's happening? So uh, over the years, you know, because I work in a garden, in the backyard, and I get it. It takes like less than 24 hours, but you can feel something itchy. Most of the times, and most people experience that. And I hope they do. Because otherwise, you may not be able to notice the tick. And I found it all different parts of my body. And if you catch it within, like, that's what everybody says, 24, probably 48 hours, you know, it's, there's no, uh, that you, that what happens is when the tick bites, you know, it just, it for, around the, 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 around the bite, it, it forms like a little pond of blood because our body reacts to it. There's, there's some damage on the skin. So, uh, you know, it rushes to fix the problem, to see what's going on. That's exactly what the tick wants. It's very uh, smart bug. The tick wants that blood and there you go. You have the blood and a poor bug without even wanting, he's, you know, he passes the bacteria in your blood. That's all, the tick by itself, if it doesn't have the, the, the um, uh, the bacteria, if it doesn't carry the bacteria, it's not that harmful. You're going to itch for a month if you get this bite. It does that itching doesn't go away, I'm telling. And it's like last year, I got it twice. And that's what happened. But you try to remove it right away. And hopefully you feel it. You know, it's like, oh, there's something. And you have to get checked. Even if you doubt, have somebody checked. Or if, if you don't see it on your body. And then the easiest way to remove it is with a Q-tip. 
you just get the Q-tip and start making circle around the, around the, around the tick. And just, you don't give up. The tick will give up. That's what happens. <laughs> Sometimes I do it like for three minutes. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get the poozers and I'm just going to pull it out, you know, with a magnifying glass and everything. But I'm like, no, let me just do it. Because um, it, it always works. And you just remove it up successfully. And you just treat it with some, you know, alcohol pad and, and that's it. Because it's you don't see the blood, you don't see the, 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 the redness, so you are not infected. So these are the tips that I wanted to give you and whoever listens. Right. And, uh, you know, you have to consider common infection sites, right? Ticks tend to go in warm areas and usually they tend to be hairy areas. So on guys, things like armpits, especially. So make sure you look in all those places that, you know, might not be too glamorous to look at uh, sometimes uh, to find them, one. Uh, and two, uh, as you said, it's very important to remove them appropriately because if you don't take it out correctly, then the head can stay in and you're left with the body and you'll still get infected. You'll still get impacted by the tick, even though you're holding it in your hands or in your tweezers or whatever. So it's very important to sweat the small stuff and pay attention to the details when it comes to ticks in this case. Uh, and the other piece too, I'll say is not everyone will remember or notice a bullseye rash. Like I never noticed a rash like that. Um, so just because it's like a common thing doesn't necessarily mean it's going to Correct. be what you notice, kind of like you mentioned before, how everyone is different and everyone responds and reacts to things differently. Um, so I didn't notice a rash you did. Uh, and, you know, if someone's listening and they had uh, Lyme disease, they maybe they noticed the rash, maybe they didn't. Uh, so everyone's a little different in every sense. Yeah. Yeah. You, but if you notice that, you know, the bite, you, you got to get checked. Yeah, no matter for sure. You have to get checked because you don't want to take a chance. Are you familiar with the name Tim Ferriss? Yep. Celebrity. He was born in Long Island, I believe, in East Hampton. And um, he got Lyme disease, actually. You know how he treated? He applied ketogenic diet. Yep. I, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm, I mean, I love ketogenic diet and I'm in and out of it, but that, I'm not saying that everyone should do it. But ketogenic diet, one of the things means less sugar you just alluded to that it, 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 you know eliminate the sugar eliminate a lot of problems so tim ferris that's what he was doing he was on ketogenic diet and he was drinking his famous uh tea he's a big tea uh you know drinker <laughs> so uh and that's how i think he managed i don't know if he still has it or if he suffers from it i doubt it but that ketogenic diet really helped him because they, I think there was a podcast with him and, and, and Rhonda uh, Patrick, and he's talk, he was talking about this Lyme disease. I tried to get in touch with him, but uh, I couldn't. I just wanted to share my story. <laughs> it's, it's impossible. It's, he got just too famous. You can't get them. Yeah, and, uh, definitely a busy guy. Um, that's a great point, too, about how other people have been impacted by Lyme disease. I think uh, the singer uh, Avril Lavigne was another one, too. Who, Justin uh, Bieber. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's a very common thing. And people don't often notice just how common it is. Like, it impacts so many people. I think millions every year, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that, that is correct. And then, I mean, when this celebrities contract the disease, and that's how we hear about it. Otherwise, we wouldn't know. It could be if something happens, it's in the news, and it's like, oh, what is that? How how did they get it? When you know they're human too, you know. Yeah. They go places, and then sometimes people get it at the beach. 
at the beach, not even a brushy, you know, woody area. That's where you can get it. Yep. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, I, I don't want all this to sound scary. It's just mostly like people to be alert and just to pay attention, especially kids. And they play outside in, in, in the evening or in the morning when they take shower, they have to be checked. Because yep. my kids, my two kids, they've gotten so many times, but it was it's ruling our house. Um, they're all grown up now, but uh, you know we give them a bath and stuff. We always check and we find things and we remove it right away. So and everything is fine. That's all. For sure, for sure. Uh, you also mentioned about the ketogenic diet a few times there. Uh, for people listening, I highly recommend going back to some of our past podcast episodes with. Uh, Jimmy St. Louis, uh, Steve Wilshire, and Tim James for a little bit more on that. And then in April, uh, we're po posting an episode with uh, Dr. Philip Prince, who's researched the ketogenic diet extensively uh, at Grove City College. And he's even looked at it in endurance athletes and found that there's no impact of the ketogenic diet on uh, endurance performance. And what he meant by that is, you know, a lot of these endurance athletes think that they need sugar to perform, right? Like the granola bars, the gels, the shakes, all these different things. And some will even run while, you know, scarfing these things down. And they found that, you know, after a couple of days of adjusting to a ketogenic low carb approach, uh, there was no change in their performance. Uh, so it kind of showed that you might not necessarily need carbohydrates to perform at a high level. Uh, in endurance and sporting activity. So go back and check those out if you haven't already. Uh, I do want to ask you one more question though, Athanas. This whole journey navigating the whole Lyme disease process is certainly something that's mentally taxing, especially for someone who's new to the USA and is trying to start their own yogurt company. What were you able to do to kind of keep yourself mentally right throughout this whole process when doctors didn't always have the best answers and you had a whole lot of stuff going on in your own life? Well, what I do is I do many things. This is like, <laughs> I'm all over the place. And it, it just, uh, what else helps me mentally? I play guitar and I sing bluegrass, uh, which sounds a little, you know, weird, funny. And people are like, oh, you're Bulgarian? How do you know bluegrass? You know, a lot of Americans don't even know what bluegrass is. I'm like, it's sort of a country, but not quite. And so play with acoustic instruments. It's a very, very fun music that has a sad lyrics and happy uh, tune. It's like, uh, I like this contrast. So I play guitar. That's, you know, relax. I am uh, also uh, practicing breathing, all kind of breathing exercise, the box breathing, uh, uh, mostly. And uh, then I, um, I meditate. And meditation is not hard at all. Uh, people's like, oh, meditation. They just imagine you have to sit in the lotus position and then just give your fingers. No, you can meditate even near uh, by construction area. You can do that. I mean, uh, that helps a lot. It really calms you down. Sleep is the other thing. Sleep is number one. I'm wearing this ring here. It's called Aura Ring. It actually tracks my sleep, my HRV, heart rate variability, my recovery um, index, you know, uh, high, uh, what else? Um, the resting heart rate, all these biomarkers are super important for our health. And I know when I have a good sleep, Next day, I am just a, uh, a champion. You know, I could do anything. 
And uh, so all these things, plus uh, another thing that I want to mention uh, is um, that we really, we, we have to create and, uh, or, or if we don't create it ourselves, learn from someone all these biohacks because the nature doesn't always work in our favor. We have to do these things. As we all know, we're going to, we age, we're going to die one day, but why rush it? Let's do something so we can delay this process. And there's a lot of good scientific literature out there. I can mention easily at least 50 names right now. I'm not going to do it. But uh, <laughs> of all this great scientists that are doing uh, uh, absolutely tremendous, uh, um, fabulous work. And everything comes out from their lab. They didn't read or anything. It's a, it's a um it's a result of their work in the lab and, and, and their knowledge and all that so we need to educate ourselves and follow that and as i said the last thing apply it if you don't apply it nothing happens for sure that's something that we think about with people who read a lot right like i know people who love to read and they read all these self-help and personal development books which is great but they never actually make any of the changes in their life and it's like you know what's the point of you know developing yourself personally if you're not going to make any of those changes right you know the learning is essentially the easy part in this case putting in the work is the hard part and you make a great point there on the biohack pieces is again you know there's a lot of these individuals uh i'll throw ben greenfield out there as one uh who you know they look at research and look at trends and mechanism like physiological mechanism of action and they think about it intuitively and they kind of do some self-experimenting and self-trials and they kind of see what happens you know is it helpful or is it worse uh, and obviously there's a risk associated with that like anything uh, but it tends to work out pretty well for a lot of them, uh, it seems. Uh, again, you know, they only really show you the ups and not a whole lot of them show you the downs uh, as well. But it, it's important, as you said, to keep an open mind on this stuff and continue to be curious and explore. And experiment with yourself. Good thing you mentioned that. I experiment all the time. And it's not crazy experiments I'm talking about. Like, for example, because I do a lot of fasting, even prolonged fasting, more than three days. I'm just going to be doing now. I'm going to start doing uh, every month. Each month, I'm going to do three days um, water-only fasting. And because I've, I've done seven days water-only fasting, then I do like uh, what they call it, OMAD, one meal a day, which is basically 24 hours fasting. And I alternate this fasting because when you alternate, uh, it's... it's um, it's better to do it because your body gets used to. It's like, uh, it knows where the food's gonna be available and it's prepared and it's just like, oh, I'm not gonna burn fat because I know I'm gonna get fat. So uh, you, gotta, you gotta trick it sometimes. The other thing is a good friend of mine and he's a PhD in biology, uh, some university in Germany, but now he works here in the US. And he said, you know, I know you do a lot of fasting, and I'm so jealous because I can't. Uh, some people can. It's just not easy for everyone, but there's, there's a way to do it. Um, he said, why don't you try? Because I know you're a biker. And yeah, I do uh, love my bike. Just go for a ride. It doesn't have to be intense. It could be just moderate, but for like two hours. So I did two and a half hours bike ride on a bike trail. You know, no hills, nothing. It just, it was, it was good. I felt good. Before I left, I measured my ketones because I have this 
you know, device to measure blood ketones. You prick your finger, measure it. It was like 0.4 millimole. And that means I'm not in ke nutritional ketosis, I call it. I'm not in ketosis. It has to be 0.5 or up. And uh, I would say even 1.3 and up, it's like you're really in ketosis. So mine was like 0.4. Came back from the bike ride, measured it right away, 2.2. And this guy was absolutely right. He says, this is equal to your three days fasting, two and a half uh, hours of bike ride. And I was like, wow, that's great. That means I started burning fat, all that fat they want to get rid of, especially us, you know, the, the older dudes, you know, <laughs> we start putting it around, you know, the you know, abdomen and the places that we don't want it to be. But uh, so, yeah, I just wanted to share this experiment. The other thing is I experimented with... Uh, with the uh, continuous glucose uh, monitor, the CGM that you install in your arm and uh, it measures your glucose. So I experimented for a month and I ate various food. I don't normally eat starchy food, but I, I ate rice, uh, potatoes, uh, pizza, which th these things I haven't eaten for years. Uh, but uh, it, it was my choice. I'm not saying you have to do it, but, um, so I measured my glucose and it turns out that white rice doesn't spike my, the insulin, doesn't spike my glucose. Some people would just go, then potatoes didn't. Try with red wine, two glasses of red wine, nothing. I'm like, wow. So of course I don't recommend this because people's like, uh oh, I'm gonna have my <laughs> wine and then whatever drinks, but uh, it didn't. But two chocolate croissants, it spiked, uh, the glucose spiked to 200. I got scared. I was like, whoa. So this way, you know what you eat, what not to eat, what to avoid, or what to limit, or just what to watch. So these are things that we, we can do, you know, in our lives, you know, experiment with different things, see how you feel. And then uh, most of the times what I do when we go for a blood test, uh, I often ask, uh, you know, to to take a certain blood test. And this is something that I don't know if you want me to talk about it now or some other time, but this is super important. Yeah, and, throw it in there. And then, yeah, why not? And then, um, and then when I get the results, uh, I do my study and I'm trying to fix it, you know, myself. Somehow, you know, with the, my uh, active, uh, you know, life, you know, exercising this, that with the diet, with the sleep and all this that I mentioned already to see if I can help myself instead of start taking some medication. Now, this is always my first uh, choice. So I'm a holistic guy. So I'm sorry, that's what I'm going to do. Of course, <laughs> if I have to take a medication, I will. I'm not saying no, 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 I'm not going to take anything. I'm just going to drink herbal teas. No, it's not going to happen. But you need to know all this stuff. So the blood tests that I always recommend and I learned uh, great minds is especially when you go for uh, for a lipid panel, most of the times you get the HDL, LDL, VLDL, and triglycerides. But you never you never see in your blood test something called ApoB, which is apolipoprotein B. But this is the the uh, it's a, it's a particle of the LDL. LDL has many other uh, cholesterols in it. So ApoB is the one, is, it's like a 90% of it. So if you know your ApoB, you know what's, what's going on. And it's just any uh, potential threat for a cardiovascular disease event or stroke or whatever, cardiovascular help in general. 
The other thing is, again, part of the lipid panel, it's called LP little a, that's how I pronounce it. It's like little a in parentheses. So these two things I would suggest to everyone, everyone should, uh, should taste for this because the, the lipoprotein A, little a, is a genetic thing. You, nothing you can do to change it. Um, you're gonna have it, but you just have to control it. Again, with, by you know, trying to limit the inflammation in your body, try to get you know, in a stress-free uh, conditioned life, if possible, do all this biohack so you can control because nothing you can do to change it. That's another thing. And whoever wants to know if they're gonna get Alzheimer, there's another test, it's called APOE. And uh, you'll know because there's like four numbers from one to four and depending on combinations, you'll know whether you're gonna get it or not. And then again, you can apply this biohacks to delay it. If it's APOE, if it's two fours, four, four, most likely you're going to get it some you know, older age, but these are things that we don't know, you know, public don't, you know, it's, I don't know why we're not informed of these things. And, you know, people like us, they have to dig in in this information um, uh, that's available out there, have to get it. I don't know why we don't get it as a normal, you know, just uh, test uh, your physical exam, because this is, this is so pop, so, so important. And there's more, of course, but I'm going to stop here. <laughs> well, Just uh, it, there's the uric of... acid is the other one. Uric acid. That's the other thing, because this could uric acid could be um, formed from uh, consuming too much fructose or glucose, because glucose can turn into fructose in our body. There's a process that does that. So the fructose then when up turn up uh, turning to uh, uric acid and uric acids will elevate your blood pressure and so on. And you know what that means. Right. There's a lot more, but let's not get too deep in the woods. Right, right. And, um, you know, there's a lot of like myth and fa fact and all these different like things that surround like blood work and blood panels and even some of the things that you talked about, like even LDL, right? Like there was a study uh, published in uh, JAMA, I think it was earlier this year uh, on association of coronary plaque with low density lipoprotein cholesterol levels or LDL and the rates of cardiovascular disease amongst uh, symptomatic adults. And they found regardless of your LDL level, uh, you know, atherosclerosis can still develop. So there was no correlation between LDL level and atherosclerosis, which is, you know, a common cause of cardiovascular disease, right? That plaque buildup on your uh, artery uh, blood vessel linings there. So th there's a lot of like different ways we can go about discussing uh, blood work and blood panels and that sort of thing. Uh, but for right now, I'm definitely going to point you back. If you're interested in those things, head back and listen to our podcast episode with Dr. Stefan Hussey, where we discuss understanding the heart and kind of navigating the uh, path that is cardiovascular disease, cardiovascular health, and all these various biomarkers we just discussed, such as HDL, such as LDL, uh, and VLDL, and triglyceride levels, uh, because he is one of the leading experts, in my opinion, at thinking through those things and understanding those things from a very practical level. Uh, but with that, Atanas, it's been an amazing episode and I'm very appreciative of you and for your willingness to come on and talk about your own experience with Lyme from a personal level, but also from a health level 
uh, especially with your expertise as it relates to nutrition and the coursework that you took at Cornell. Uh, and people can still find you on social media and online at Tremona Foods, I believe. Is that correct? Yes, we post every Monday, uh, we post the Tremona Health, health uh, News and Tips. Uh, this is just a small you know, article, you can call it, that I write every Monday. I haven't written anything for today, but I have to sit down and do it because I have a <laughs> very good uh, topic in mind I have to write about. So, and it's, I think it's educational because I just collect everything and just offer in, in you know, in a nutshell because there's so much and then the science is boring. Definitely check them out at Tremona Yogurt on Instagram and TremonaFoods.com. Is that correct? That's the website. Yeah, TremonaFoods.com and Instagram is Tremona Yogurt. Awesome. Atanas, always a pleasure, man. Dan, uh, I can't wait for our next uh, podcast. It's, it's just <laughs> uh, a, a, such a friendly environment. Like we're talking, you and I, and nobody else is listening or watching. It's just, uh, I, I feel very comfortable and uh, really enjoy it. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.